You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It's great to be with you. What are we talking about today and who have we got with us? Today, we've, uh, after many requests to cover property investing, we've brought on our special guest, Amy Lenardi, to cover property investing 101 and some of those things that Owen and I don't personally have as much experience with. Um, so mm-hmm. you can get interested in the property investing game and uh, start to talk about that rather than our um, usual topic of investing in shares and ETFs. So yeah, um, yeah I might ha- hand it over to Amy to introduce herself and what she does and a little bit about her awesome podcast she launched as well. So good morning. My name is Amy Lenardi and good to be back here today, especially talking about property investing, which is a particular passion of mine. So For anyone who um, hasn't heard of me before, I am a buyer's advocate. I'm based down in Melbourne, so only buy properties here in Victoria um, and work with both owner-occupiers and investors. But I'm a property investor myself, so (laughs) like you guys, sort of I know what I know in my little field. I don't know a lot about shares and stocks, so I love tuning into to your podcast to sort of balance my investing knowledge out. Uh, but yeah, this is absolutely something that I love chatting about. Mm. And we've got some great notes. We've talked about this for so long now. Um, <laughs> it's And I, even the last episode that we did together, we were thinking, God, there's so much to talk about. You, you, we, we only scratched the surface on mm-hmm. so many so many important subjects. Um, mm-hmm. But with this one, we're going to try and focus more so on the property investing angle. So not just home ownership, buying the right house if you want to live in it. I mean, we're going to talk about that too. But 
mostly about investing. And I think some uh, a really good way to start this off, Amy, is you've got some interesting stats you want to throw at us. Absolutely. So in terms of property investors in Australia, the ATO figures show that only 72.8% of individuals who own an investment property have just one, whilst 18.9% of individuals own two, and then less than 1% own six properties or more. And I know that sounds like a lot of properties for anyone. But what it kind of indicates is that perhaps people don't have like a defined property investment plan and they just mm. add one to their portfolio because they, they think that's the thing to do. But if I break it down and if I have a think about potentially why people don't continue buying investment properties, I think it really does come down to the fact that you have to have a defined long-term strategy of which property forms part of it. So obviously diversifying is very important, but sometimes people will buy one property and think, well, I've ticked that box. And this is something that I've achieved and therefore now I'll go and think about other options. But property can create long-term income in terms of growth or yield. So I think just people not sitting down and planning it out quite far in advance. I think some people mm. like to dabble in it. I guess that's the best way of, of saying that they don't have a strategy and it's something they think they should be doing because perhaps someone they know has done it or their accountant has suggested that they consider it. And I know that a lot of people potentially have a really bad experience with property investing. So they might buy one property and perhaps it doesn't perform the way that they want it to or perhaps they have a bad experience with their tenant and then they just stop and they think this isn't for me or this isn't working. And I know a lot of people, especially with off-the-plan purchases, this can be fraught with danger. So that can mm. stop them from doing anything else. And I know yeah, that- we've talked about that a few times, actually, how bad it, how bad that can be, and kind of kind of some of the warning signs there. Absolutely, and I know that some people, like uh, especially older people who don't have a lot of experience with being a landlord, they see it as being a headache. So they think a tenant is always demanding things and they've always got to be fixing things. Mm -hmm. And my response to that is if you buy a, a property that's uh, suitable for your strategy and you have a good property manager, it should be a very low maintenance asset. And then mm -hmm. lastly, I think that also this is a, quite a feature of the older generation is there's a big focus off paying off debt rather than increasing it. And obviously the closer you get to retirement, the less debt you want to have, but it's very much a baby boomer characteristic of don't keep on taking on debt. So, but debt can be seen as as good debt sometimes if it's making you money. And that's through either growing in value as an asset or providing you a return through your rental income. Mm, and that's something I don't think we've we've covered too much. We often talk about what 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 is bad debt and maybe that hex is an okay debt, but we haven't really talked about what is property debt and like how how do you deal with that and knowing that you've got this massive uh, debt in your life that you have you're paying off or using for a certain strategy, but like how do you how do you cope day to day knowing that you owe this much to the bank? It's a lot it, and it, because you're borrowing so much because you're leveraging so much when you buy a property, most people are borrowing eighty percent sometimes more. Mm. It is a big potential cloud that's hanging over your head. So that's why you, it's really, really important to choose the right asset so that is hopefully growing in value, but also making sure you really understand your cash flows. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the episode. 
Mm-hmm. For, for me, it's always, like you said, good debt, bad debt. You know, we, it's easy for us to bucket things as this is a good debt typically, this is a bad debt typically speaking. But with property, um, and Amy, I'm sure you, you you appreciate this and you tell this to your clients, there's a whole range of different assets that you can own. Some are investment grade or good, some or many aren't. And I guess it's the, the, the buying that and the, the choosing of the property that, that makes a, the big difference there. How Correct. about speaking of differences... When it, when it comes to comparing property to say, like what Kate said at the top, we, we talk about ETFs or shares, what would you say are the major differences that investors need to consider? So property is very much a long-term investment. And I know, I know you always talk about the fact that all investments need to be considered <laughs> long-term. Um, property in particular, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. Firstly, we have a lot of transaction costs. So both with the buying and the selling process, we've got our stamp duty, we've got, um, you know, if you're using a buyer's agent, you might have that fee. We have our all of these little extra costs, your conveyancing, your building inspections. But then when you sell to, you will have your tax that you need to pay. And mm. you also have your agent selling fees, marketing and advertising. So because of that, you almost need to make up, you know, stamp duty, for example, is around 5% of your purchase costs. So you have to make up that 5% relatively quickly if you plan on selling that asset quickly just to make a positive return. So we need to hold it at least for a certain period of time to make up those initial transaction costs. And also because we have market cycles and the property market, it's kind of like, it's more like a big ship. It takes a little while to turn if we look at peaks and troughs compared to the share market, which is, I guess, my best analogy for that is like a jet ski. It can turn around really quickly. So to ride out those longer term peaks and troughs, we just do need time because there are certain things within your control when you buy an investment property, but the market is outside of your control. So if you time it inadvertently, you buy at the peak and you, you know, we come into a market cycle where there is a bit of a trough. We don't want to be forced to sell at an inappropriate time. So we need time. There's also mm. low, low liquidity when we talk about property. You can't just sell it tomorrow if you need to. It takes time to sell it and it's not always the best time. So sometimes you have to wait. You can't sell a piece of a property. You can't go mm-hmm. half like you can with shares. So, and um, we also have, uh, when we buy a property, we've generally most of the time got a loan. So this is the difference between a lot of other assets is we we leverage ourselves quite highly. Mm. So like I said earlier, most of the time we'll borrow as an investor 80%, sometimes more. And what that means is that we've got the benefit of compounding effects. So if we take our, say, $200,000 deposit and we take that to buy a million-dollar property, so that's an 80% LVR, so loan-to-value ratio, if we have a property that's, say, growing at 7% per annum, we've got 7% on a million dollars growing rather than 7% on $200,000, which is great when the market is growing, but we also need to understand that that works in reverse. So if the market is Mm. declining, then we've got compounding effects going down as well. So that's something really important to know. Mm. There's so much to consider there, Amy. I wonder, do you have any rules of thumb if I was to walk up to you and say, hey, mate, Amy, I'm thinking of buying an investment property. 
roughly how long should I think about holding this property? So I would say as a very broad rule of thumb, you should aim for 10 years. Yep. Okay. I think that I think that there's there's certain strategies which we'll talk about shortly that people employ that for them it would be less because they've built that into their strategy for example flipping or value adding but just to give yourself time for that property to do what it needs to do I think that that 10 years as a minimum should be your goal. When I I always because I'm not the expert right I always think about it I'm I'm thinking seven to ten years um so it's probably the upper end of what I was thinking but I, I speak to some people and they say yeah you should almost act as if you're not going to sell it if that's you know so for long term wealth creation act as if you're not going to sell it if you buy well and, and and so forth um how about when it comes to things that we hear in the the news I know there's so much talk about negative gearing, or at least there was during the last mm. election cycle. Mm. Um, and you talk about cash flow and all these different things. We know from shares that you get dividends. Most people don't use debt, um, which I think is a good thing for shares. But how about, can you can you just kind of define all those terms and how they play a role in an investment strategy? Yeah. So I'll use the cash the word cash flow all the time when I'm speaking to investors. And what that basically means is when you've got an investment property, we have the income. So the income is the rent, which is coming in generally on a monthly basis. So that is our income. And then we have all of our expenses. So our expenses, the main one is generally our interest. But then we also have things like our property management fees, our maintenance, our rates, anything that's costing us money for that property. So once we have the rent in and all of those expenses out, we have our our cash flows. So generally, if you're buying a property, especially in one of the capital cities, your cash flows will cost you more uh, out of pocket than they bring in. So we call this negative gearing. It's costing you money out of pocket. So if someone says they're negatively geared, that means they're having to tip in money out of their own pocket every month to contribute towards that property. You will also hear something called positive gearing. So that's when your rental income exceeds your expenses on a monthly basis. And then we've got the last one, which a lot of people might have heard of as well, which is positive cash flow. So the difference there between positive gearing and positive cash flow is positive cash flow still costs you money out of pocket every month, but once you factor in all of your tax benefits from your negative gearing and your depreciation, you come out uh, you come out ahead at the end of the year. So that's the difference mm. between them. And I always say to people, when you are trying to figure out your cash flows, try and work off a pre-tax basis because then you know that you'll be comfortable with those cash flows rather than having to rely on a tax return every year to fund that property. The tax return needs to be seen as like the bonus, which we mm. put it in our offset account or we, we pay down our debt. Um, we don't want to be relying on that to be able to afford this property. It comes back to that thing of never doing, never investing in something with the purpose of solely gaining a tax advantage. And I, I've seen um, people I know in the past just buy a an apartment and negative gearing it just for the tax benefit, even though it's squeezing their their um, income to the extreme, and they're just able to pay the like the mortgage repayments. So, um, are you able to talk a little bit more about like when someone might negative gear versus positive gear a property? Yeah. 
So firstly, based on what you just said, I mean, that's that's crazy because what you're saying is someone's spending a dollar to save 37 cents <laughs> or whatever tax rate they're on. Mm. And I know that depreciation is really exciting for a lot of people, especially accountants, because it's like <laughs> it feels <laughs> almost like free money back. But depreciation is basically the tax office recognising a loss. And the best way I can compare it is the same way as when you buy a brand new car and you drive it out of the showroom, your car depreciates most at the very start. And it's mm-hmm. the same with properties. The newer the property you have, the faster that property depreciates in terms of the the dwelling mm-hmm. and the tax office is recognising that. So, you know, depreciation is is great in terms of uh, your tax return, but it never needs to be the goal. And I know a lot of accountants really love the idea of their clients buying something with really strong depreciation because of the tax benefits, but the accountant is there to save you tax, not to help you create a property investment strategy. Mm. So I guess it's a different in mindset in the way they're approaching it versus the way you might, you should be approaching it as an investment. And when we choose to use the negative gearing strategy, because remember negative gearing is something which is costing us money. The Mm. only reason we ever negatively gear is because we're expecting a, that asset to grow in value. So it's the capital growth that we get the benefit from because otherwise if we've got a property that's not growing in value and it's costing us money, it's not achieving anything. It's not achieving any purpose. How do you how do you think about um, cash flows and, and being positively geared in respect of, I guess, fitting in with other assets in a portfolio? Did you try and, or a strategy? Do you try and think of it, Amy, as if you know this 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 client or this investor has a negatively geared property, so therefore they should have positively geared, like. Uh, do you try to? Do you ever think about it that way, or do you try and, I guess, neutralize the cost from a property portfolio over the long term? That is completely dependent on the investor's cash flow. So, right. if you've got someone who is very high income, they have low expenses, and they have a lot of surplus cash, they may be in a position where they can continue to negatively gear throughout their mm. portfolio. So, as an investor, you will potentially get to the point where you hit a borrowing capacity cap or a cash flow cap. So you have to sort of plan out your portfolio. If you plan on buying a couple of properties over time, you need to forecast this. And there's no point in trying to be really aggressive if it's just going to eat up all of your borrowing capacity and you can't then buy another property. So that really just does come down to that investor's income and expense position. So, yeah, I think Mm -hmm. that that really sitting down at the start and understanding how will this property impact me. On that, generally, a general rule of thumb is the younger you are and the more time you have for that property to grow in value, assuming you can afford it, it is better to have some more aggressive capital growth properties in your portfolio at the start because they have more time to grow in value and then later on potentially considering adding some more yielding properties in there too. Mm. Do many people mm. think that way when they're starting off with property? Because most well, people, I, I'd assume, would just be focused on getting it their first home and that would be probably enough and they'd stop there. Yeah. The thought of having like a long-term property plan of buying multiple properties is quite foreign to me. It is and I think that it it really comes down to your investment 
strategy and how far you feel comfortable in planning ahead because the younger you are, the more uncertainty you have in your life. I know if I look back on my life five years ago, it's changed so dramatically that since then I, I couldn't have planned for that. So the older you are, and I'm not talking about, you know, being like in your retirement, but generally the older you are, the more certainty you have around your cash flows mm-hmm. and therefore you can make longer-term plans, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, one thing, Amy, that a lot of people get confused about when it comes to, I guess, the property jargon, um, just like shares, there's quite a bit of it, uh, is the difference between, I guess, growth assets and yield assets. I think you've mentioned yield already. Maybe you can define what yield is and then compare the two different types of, I guess, assets that go into someone's portfolio and I guess their considerations as they, they eye off the property. Yeah, absolutely. So basically when we purchase a property, we buy it for a return and you can get your return through two ways. The first way is through that asset growing in value, which is capital growth. So you buy it for, you know, now and you sell it for $700,000 in the future. So that is our capital growth portion. And capital growth is kind of controlled by a few different factors. And from the top level up, and this is one that is outside of your control, it's it's the broad market. So it's the cycle that we're going through. It's the economy. It's things like uh, interest rates, the the, the impact that corona is having on the market right now, the impact a couple of years ago that APRA had when they tightened regulations. All of those things are outside our control, but they do have a strong influence on value. And then if we work our way downwards, then our capital growth might be defined by the state that we purchase in. From there, it's the suburb and then the street and then the dwelling itself. So we do have control over those factors. And when we to determine that we're going to buy an investment property, we need to then say, okay, if capital growth is my strategy, what are the things I can control? And then how do I then choose all of those other things to make sure that I get the best growth possible? And that is obviously easier said than done, (laughs) but it's something that we need to understand. And then if we talk about yield, So the yield on a property is the way that you calculate it is you take the monthly rent and then you times it by 12 or you take the weekly rent and times it by 52. So you basically get your gross annual rent and then you divide that by the purchase price. So that gives you a gross yield. For example, you might end up with, say, in Melbourne, if I'm talking about an apartment, it might be 4%, 4 4.5%. So that is your return that you're getting through your rental income. Now, there's an inverse relationship between growth and yield. So like I'm sure you have in the share market, you the stronger growth that you get, the lower the yield is. So the higher out-of-pockets it costs you per month to contribute towards that property. So you're negatively gearing a lot higher in order to get that growth. Because if you had high growth and high yield, everyone would be excited about that. Everyone would (laughs) buy those assets, which would drive the price up and drive the yield down. So that's just Mm. a really general way of explaining it. Mm. Now, when we're talking about yield, the ways that a property will generally get a higher yield, so this is a higher rent in terms of 
comparing it to the purchase price, it'll generally mean that our land component is smaller because mm. tenants rent the dwelling, not the land. So if we look at, say, for example, a house on a full block and it has a big backyard versus the one next door, which is the exact same house, but potentially that land's been subdivided into two, so there's another house in the backyard now, the rental income on those properties will possibly be pretty similar, but the purchase price for the one on the bigger piece of land will be much higher, so therefore our yield is lower. Hmm. Amy, can I put you on the spot here? Um, this would be a bit of a, a out of left field for you, but my wife and I just um, put in a bid for a property in our suburb here in uh, Victoria. So that's the oh. state. It's obviously here in Australia. Um, and the suburbs out in the eastern suburbs, and I would define it as a supply-constrained suburb. And what I mean by that is I f- I know that there's restrictions around, um, you know, cutting up the blocks and so forth. It also backs onto state forest. So there's really nowhere else that houses can be built unless they kind of go up, which is probably not going to happen anytime soon. It's a, it's a, it's an older house. I'd say it's a seventies house and it is, um, as a, it's a thousand square meter block or just over. So about, I think it's about quarter of an acre. It's on, uh, probably one of the more sought-after streets in our suburb too. So um, we're very fortunate in that regard. Now, just putting you on the spot here, saying this is a house, it's on a you know, it's on a thousand square meter block. It's an older home. It's nothing like really fancy. It's in a pretty well supply constrained suburb. Would you say that's more of a capital growth asset, or would you say that's more of a higher yield asset? So that to me sounds very much like a higher capital growth asset, and that's because. You've, what you've talked about is a, a couple of factors. Um, we've got scarcity, we have land component, and then we also have a, um, you know, you're talking about premium location too. So, and then, and then you're saying because we've got a, a quite a high land component, then our yield for that naturally is going to be quite low. So I don't know if you've even calculated it, but I'm guessing it's going to be somewhere around maybe I don't know, less than the two and a half percent. Oh yeah, it would be. I haven't calculated, but yeah, I imagine it would be, um, just given the age of the home and, and it's a three bedroom. You could call it that, I guess, but it's not. Yeah, I would say that it's um, it's definitely. I I thought of it as a capital growth because it's a you know it's um on a nice street. It's kind of that old analogy where it's the maybe not the worst house on the, on, a, on a decent street, but it's um, it's not far away from being the worst house. So uh, I think that's kind of what I was looking for anyway. Yeah, so what you're talking about kind of leads me on to this thing called the growth versus yield spectrum. So if we picture mm-hmm. a, a, like a, a, a long line and then at the very start of the line, we have our higher yielding properties and our low growth properties. We're, what we're talking about here would be something like, for example, a studio apartment. So these types of properties have a very high yield because they're basically tiny little rooms. They don't even have a bedroom. So the price is very low, but the rental is generally quite high. And that's often because they're leased out to students, they're in the middle of the city, but we generally have limited or no growth on these properties. Mm. And then if we work our way along that spectrum, next we might have something like an apartment. So we have a very low land component there, but we still have a higher rental amount proportional to the price and then we might move on to something like a unit and then a townhouse and then a house with the backyard chopped off and then something like your house Owen which is something with quite a high portion of land the strongest 
growth properties we generally have are these properties called period properties. And we have quite a mm-hmm. lot of these in Melbourne and Sydney. And the reason behind that is because they're generally really well located. They are closer to the city because they were built, you know, a hundred plus years ago, back when we didn't have a lot of outer suburbs. Mm-hmm. And they're also very, very scarce because they don't make them anymore. They're hundred years old. And unfortunately, they're becoming more scarce because sadly, not all of them have heritage overlays and some of them are being knocked down. So on that spectrum, we've got a studio apartments at the very bottom. We've got those big, beautiful period homes at the very top. Those will cost you a lot out of pocket, but they will give you the strongest capital growth. So as an investor, we need to figure out where we sit along this spectrum. And the way that we do that is a it's figuring out those cash flows because not everyone can afford to hold those period properties. We might be looking at a townhouse to make sure that it fits within their budget. Oh, one of the things I, I've always sort of wondered is like you could buy a $1 million investment property or you could buy two $500,000 properties. Um, like it's you're spending maybe the same amount of money on deposits and things, maybe a bit more on stamp duty and entry costs for those if you're buying two properties. But does it help in terms of diversification? Because that's something we talk about a lot to have put your money into two different properties rather than just having one big property. So that's a really great question, Kate. And for me, that depends on how much that investor wants to spend. So if we have an investor who, for example, has you know a really strong borrowing capacity and cash flows, and they've got say over two million dollars to spend, I would consider breaking that down into a couple of properties. Only because that has, for $2 million for an investment property, that just does take start to take us towards the top end of the bell curve in terms of affordability for a lot of people. So we want to make sure when we resell that property in the future, we are a little bit closer to the median in most suburbs. It just, um, it means that there's going to be more buyers for us. Mm. Now, if we're spending, say, a million dollars in your example, that then does come down to the cash flows. So a million dollar property will buy you a superior property than two $500,000 ones. And as just using some ballpark examples in terms of returns, say you've got a million dollar property returning you 7% capital growth or two $500,000 properties, they will be higher yielding. So easier on the cash flows, but they might only be returning you 6% capital growth. So that then comes down to, do you need those higher cash flows or can you be a little bit more aggressive? Because diversification, gosh, in property, we can talk about, you know, diversifying between states, between suburbs. I've got all of my investment properties in Melbourne. They're just in different suburbs, but then we can diversify. We could have two properties within the same suburb. One's a house and one's a townhouse. So I think that there's there's a lot in play there rather than just splitting it up because you can. Yeah. So one of the things that I looked for when I was looking with my wife and I was adamant about this, I said, we need to find a a house that has um, a good piece of land on it because we can always fix up the house. And I mean, I'm not, you could look at my hands and tell that I'm not a tradesman, but (laughs) I feel like I'm just excited by being able to do things around the house because I feel like you can't replace the land, but, but you can replace the house, you know, if you wanted to. 
How do you think about the two, like the, the, the actual house or, um, I guess, building versus the land it's on? So I'm going to introduce a topic here which some people find it hard to get their heads around. So just hear me out. It's called land to asset ratio. Now, what this basically means is the percentage of the purchase price that is attributed towards the land component and the Mm -hmm. asset or the dwelling component. So to begin with, I want to make it really clear that land value is not the same as land size. So for example, if you buy, I'm here in Melbourne, if you buy a 150 square metre block in Fitzroy, it's going to be worth more than a 700 square metre block somewhere 30 kilometres out of the city. So we're not Mm. talking about land size here, we're talking about land value. And land to asset ratio, we want it to be as high as possible that still fits within our cash flows. And what I mean by that is if you buy a big old dilapidated house on a big block, we might have, say, a 90%, 95% land to asset ratio, but that house is going to be falling down around us. It's going to have a super Mm. low yield, so it's going to cost us a lot to hold. And in theory, that property will grow the most if if the land value is good, but it's just going to cost us a lot to hold. And I, I, on the other end of the spectrum here, we'll have something like one of those brand new off-the-plan high-density apartments which have very, very low land components because you're, say, one of the 100 on the block, mm. but it won't cost us very much to hold because the yield is higher. And I have a lot of people saying, especially the more analytical people, saying, well, how do I figure out exactly how much the land-to-asset ratio is? And the only way you can really do it is say if you had a like a house and land package, you knew exactly how much the land cost and exactly how much the dwelling cost. That's the only way to get an exact number. But I say to people kind of think of it more as a flowing spectrum with a dilapidated big old house on a good block at one end, a high density apartment at the other end. Ideally, we want to be aiming for that sort of 60 to 90% as an investor knowing that the closer you get to 90%, the more negative gearing you're facing. When uh, you started talking, so just, this is a rough rule of thumb that our, or rough calculation I should say, between 70% and 80% of our purchase price is probably in the land. And the way I thought about that is there was a house that sold recently, or I shouldn't say a house, it was just an empty block about the same size on a, about a street away. Um, and I compared that to what we paid. And I made me think, that, that might be another rough rule of thumb you could use to calculate that? Absolutely. So if you have a block of land that's sold nearby or a house that's so dilapidated it's essentially land value, you can use that as a benchmark. So say there was a block that sold for around 700000 and then you've bought a property and the land's the same and you paid nine hundred, then your dwelling is $200,000. It's, it's a very rough rule of thumb. Um, but sometimes it's hard mm. as well because, you know, when you have older properties, it's very hard to determine what that that house replacement cost would be because if you ever replaced it, you'd have to put a new property on there. You can't go and build an old one. So it is quite a complex sort of thing for people to get their head around. But I just say try and think of it on that that spectrum more than trying to figure out exactly this is 55% or this is 78%. So, Amy, one of the big questions that people have 
um, when investing in property is what are the different investment strategies they can use and what are some of the key characteristics of each of them. So would you be able to, this probably ties in a lot of what you've talked about throughout the episode, but are you able to sort of highlight some of those key strategies and um, some of the, the key points of each of them? Yeah. So the the main strategy that I work with investors for is basically buy and hold. So it's buying a property for the long term. It's making sure that our cash flows fit within our budget so that we can hold it and we're not forced to sell it before we're ready to. So this is long-term investing and this is this can be a mixture of capital growth and higher yielding properties. It's essentially saying we're going to buy it and we're going to hold it for a long time. We also have investors who might adopt more positive cash flow strategies and the reason they do this is then it allows them access to build their portfolio quicker. So when you've got positive cash flow, you've got money coming in, every month and you are either using that to start paying down your debts or using that to then uh, you know have extra borrowing capacity to go and buy more properties so people who use this strategy often have quite a lot of very high yielding properties but not a lot of growth but they're just relying on that rental income some of the more risky strategies include developing Now, a lot of people come to me and say, I'm just going to buy a block. I'm going to chop it in half. I'll live in one and then I'll (laughs) I'll (laughs) put the other one out. Mm -hmm. Easier than done. Mm -hmm. Just, and I've, I've, you know, had experience in property development, developing for, and it is, first of all, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of time involved. There is a element of, um, again, market timing. So if you inadvertently buy a block of land at the peak and then by the time you're ready to sell that property, if you have to sell that property because that's your strategy but the market's come back, you've put yourself in a bit of an awkward situation and then you've got a lot of more, a lot more challenges around financing that too. So mm-hmm. getting construction loans and I know a lot of banks right now are not super excited about even lending for these types of projects. So that is a very risky, but that's a very high like effort, high, a very active way of property investing. Mm -hmm. Also have flipping. So Mm -hmm. I think shows like The Block have made made the idea of flipping um, sound really exciting. And what I have to say to people is when you're trying to value add, generally the people who do the best here are people who are in that industry and they have low labour costs. So, for example, tradies, builders. Um, so that means that, yeah, they're able to put less in to get more out. But also bearing in mind that when you're buying an investment property, remember we've got to make up those or- original transaction costs plus any growth plus our holding costs plus then factoring out in our opportunity cost and our capital gains tax, a lot of people might think, oh, wow, they bought it for this price and sold it for that price, Mm. so they made that amount of profit. Once you factor in all of those other costs, then that profit sometimes isn't so exciting. Mm. And again, you can be at the mercy of the market if you you buy at the wrong time. Uh, Value adding, I guess, is is kind of... Value adding for me is more in that buy and hold strategy rather than flipping. So it might be something like buying a property and then giving it a cosmetic update. You might do a bigger renovation. I just always say to people here, understand why you're trying to value add. 
if you buy a property and renovate it now, but then put a tenant in for 10 years, you're basically spending money and then that, that money is depreciating over time. So the only reason you would do that is if you're going to get a significantly higher rental return for it that would cover those costs plus more. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would say to people, maybe consider just doing a refresh before you sell. So then you've got a nice shiny property that people will be more excited to buy. And I guess a lot of that comes down to really doing your research and knowing the area you're going to buy in and what actually adds value in that area as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's, I mean, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a million other strategies, but those are, those are essentially the ones that a lot of people come to me and, and discuss the pros and cons of. I, I work purely with residential properties, but there's also the uh, opportunity to invest in commercial properties. That's not something that's my expertise. And I say to people, look, it is it is a higher risk option because you generally can have very extensive vacancies here. So mm. it is great for certain reasons. It's often higher yielding and your tenant pays your outgoings. But sometimes you might not have a tenant for six months or a year or even longer. So that's uh, that's just you know, my suggestion is that is for more sophisticated investors who have really strong cash flows. Mm. I, Amy, I feel like I've got a lot of free advice from you on this. So send me your invoice afterwards. But um, <laughs> let's say, um, you know, if I was just someone who was, because, you know, I, I feel like maybe this is, uh, maybe I'm looking down upon the the common folk here when I say this, but I'm, I feel like I'm pretty well educated when it comes to finance. So I sometimes feel entitled, like I don't need to go and see someone, you know, like a buyer's advocate, but I think that's totally the wrong approach because buying a house is such an important thing and it's such a big asset in people's lives. But if I was someone, and I should be, and I might give you a call after this, if I was to approach you and say, hey, Amy, thinking of buying a house, um, this is my, I, I feel like property is a good long-term vehicle or asset class for me. What are some of the things that you would talk to me about? So when I'm defining an investment brief for a client, there's a couple of pieces of the puzzle that we need to put that together to determine what and where we're going to buy. The first mm-hmm. thing is budget. So unless you can get a loan, you are not going to be able to do anything. So that's <laughs> basically your borrowing capacity. So going to the bank and finding out how much you can borrow Second is your cash flows. So I quite often say to an investor up front, how much per month are you happy to contribute to this property out of pocket before tax? And 90% of the time they'll say, well, I don't know. And I'll send them away and I'll, I'll, I'll get them to do some homework and sit down and do their cash flows and come back to me and say, all right, this is the amount of money I'm happy to contribute. So then after that, we talk about the goals. So does this property need to be more of a capital growth play or a higher yielding play? Is this something that we want to be building a portfolio over time? So we need to preserve borrowing capacity. Let's talk about diversification if you already have a couple of properties. And then lastly, we just talk a little bit more about the personal aspects. So for example, that client's risk profile. So if they're very Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're very nervous about property investing. We'll make sure we buy something that's a little bit going to give them a bit more of a smooth ride. If they've had a bad experience in the past, for example, buying an off the plan property that hasn't performed, you know, we'll talk through that. We'll talk about why that was not so much of a good choice and how we're going to do things differently. 
some investors want to be a bit more speculative. And what I mean by that is we might look at in areas that are a bit more gentrifying, up and coming. So there's a little bit mm-hmm. higher risk there. But again, we're talking about the very long term. And also these areas might be, um, some investors might be a bit more sensitive to the types of demographics that will be renting those properties. They'll generally be mm. potentially low income. And when I talk about gentrifying areas, I'm still talking about areas that have good growth prospects and they're not, um, you know, they don't have a high crime rate or they don't have a high proportion of social housing or anything, but they're just not going to be full of, of of white collar workers who are both working in finance in the city, for example. So <laughs> we overlay all of those aspects and then we come back to, all right, well, then what does that property look like for us? So it always has to be the strategy first and then how does that property fit into the strategy, not oh, I really want to buy in Geelong, therefore I'm, I'm going to go and buy a property there and I'll just have an investment property. And this mm. kind of leads me to the last thing that I want to highlight is property investment advice in Australia is not regulated. And when I say yep. that, I, I just want to make sure that people understand that there are a lot of companies out there, a lot of people out there who are saying that they're giving property investment advice, but they are often just trying to sell you a product. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of those off the plan companies who they don't they don't take into consideration your personal strategy. They just have a property that they want to sell you. They might still talk about cash flows. So a couple of red flags here is if any person or company is ever promising you some kind of return, so promising mm-hmm. Guaranteeing you some kind of either rental return or capital growth that is very much a red flag. And you just need to always understand how this company is getting paid. So if you're not paying them, they are getting paid from somewhere else. So just be very, very careful when you're getting investment advice because it is not regulated and Mm. it is sadly fraught with danger because it's very commission based driven industry. And you see a lot of those seminars and those free lunches showing you how to build your property empire and even nowadays your Airbnb empire that always always look a bit fishy, but they seem to draw the crowds. I've uh, um, talked to a few people that have been pulled into these things and fully convinced by what yeah. they've been told. Everyone loves a quick yeah, get-rich-quick scheme. Mm-hmm. There's no magic bullet. It is just about time. And all of these things that I've said, they sound, you know, especially at the restart, quite complicated. And there is a lot of research that needs to go into this. It is not an easy thing to figure out by yourself. Mm. So if you're not getting professional advice, it's going to take you a long time to, to understand all of this. But, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the outcome here is the more effort you put in, the more you'll get out of it in the end. So I do think that um, using a buyer's agent who has a lot of experience in the investment area is is very, very important. If you're buying your home, you know, it, it's a little bit different because that's not based on the numbers. That's a bit more emotional. But, yeah, if you're buying an investment property, I do say seek professional ha- advice if you're not experienced with it or you don't have the time to research it, but just be very critical of the advisor that you're speaking to. Mm. Yeah, I, I might just um, add one thing here on the end, Amy, which is that a lot of what we talk about with property, the numbers, the I guess the emotion, it becomes very overwhelming for people. So my advice to everyone is, one, you can go and listen to Amy's podcast, um, which we'll put in the show notes, of course, 
But two, if you find that you're overwhelmed um, with this big thing you've got to do, get someone in your corner. Like I'm genuine with this. Get someone in your corner that can do go to auctions for you, can do the bidding or help you do the bidding, can talk about your goals. Go and get this advice because it is really, really, really important. I want to stress that. Um, Amy, you would be familiar with this. Kate, you're going to be familiar with this soon, I'm sure, when you buy a house. But there are so many people that are looking to sell you something. Even my wife said that real estate agents, you know, they've got a very important role to play, but they are the ultimate salesmen and women. And you know they will they will appear uh, appeal to your excitement to you to whatever gets the sale um, over the line. So it's really important to have someone in your corner. Uh, Amy, before uh, we let you go, where can people go to to learn more about your podcast, to learn more about you, and all that type of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is amylenardi.com.au. I have a podcast. It is a first home buyer podcast. But it's still going to be relevant for anyone looking to buy a property because part of it we talk about first home buyers, but later in the series, we're going to be talking about, like you said before, how to deal with real estate agents, how to bid at auctions, how to put offer offers in, what to do in the due diligence process. So all of those skills that you need when buying either a first home, your 10th home or an investment property. So that podcast is called The Buyer's Bible. We're in all of the podcast app or you can follow us on Instagram, but a lot of practical skills in there, which I feel like not a lot of people have because where where would you learn how to do these things? Yeah. yeah I feel like it's just word of mouth at the moment. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great, Amy. Uh, Kate, Amy, thanks for joining me. And Amy, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kate. See you next time. Thanks, Amy. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.